Welcome to the Simple Cyber Podcast, brought to you by Internet 2.0, where our cyber intelligence specialists talk with other domain experts about the steps you can take to keep your organization safe. Today I'm with Chris Painter, a member of the Internet 2.0 Advisory Board. Chris has spent 30 years in cybersecurity, first as a prosecutor, then as a senior official at the Department of Justice. He was also on the White House National Security Council, and he was finally the cyber diplomat at the State Department. Currently, he is the president of the Global Forum at the Cyber Expertise Foundation, among many other things. Hello, Chris, and welcome. Hey, thanks. It's great to be with you. State-sponsored actors have perpetrated many attacks targeting Microsoft customers earlier this year. They've specifically impacted email systems globally. Months later, over 75,000 systems are yet to have that vulnerability fixed. Microsoft released security updates to protect customers and strongly encouraged everyone to apply the updates immediately. This was followed by a public campaign by the US Cyber Command and the Australian Centre for Cybersecurity, trying to encourage all organisations to apply the patch. Chris, what's behind these attacks and why is Microsoft in the hacker sites? Well, I think Microsoft, obviously because of its footprint, because so many people use its operating system, use the software, they're certainly not alone among the victims or the targets of both criminal groups and, and nation state groups. Uh, really, I think those those groups have been targeting all kinds of systems people rely on just before the Microsoft Exchange server hack that uh, the U.S. and others attributed to China. Uh, there was uh, a big hack uh, of control of another kind of control system uh, that was attributed to Russia. So, so nation states go after a number of systems. But I think it's because of the criticality of the Microsoft uh, systems and how widely they're used. And indeed, you know, one of the problems is that people don't, uh, you know, there are two kinds of vulnerabilities we see, ones that are out in the wild already that people know about and simply haven't patched, uh, and others that are new, what they call zero-day vulnerabilities that uh, are, are new, and so there's not a patch available for it yet, but even when those patches come out, often people are slow, you know, users, businesses, et cetera, and even government entities are slow to patch, and, and that's something that we need to get much better at because the attackers are going to continue to go after these systems. They're going to continue to look for those vulnerabilities. And if we don't, if we don't have basic cyber hygiene, really the, the basic uh, ability to make sure that you're, you're patching your systems, you have up-to-date software, you have the right protocols in place. There are a number of different protocols. Australia has a set of protocols. Uh, there's an organization called the Center for Internet Security that I'm part of that um, is a nonprofit that also has a set of controls. Uh, that really is a first line of defense. Patching, having that basic level of hygiene. Now, look, really sophisticated cyber uh, actors like nation states will still be persistent and get through uh, those systems too, but you want, you want to make them work harder for it. Over the last 18 months, we've seen some significant hacks, uh, and you've referred to some. They've impacted pipelines, meatworks, political parties. You mentioned the state actors. I'd like to delve a little more deeply into the behaviour of both of those or many of those. It's hard to tell what, what's motivating them these days. Can you shed some light? Yeah, sure. It, it depends, as you said, on the actor. I mean, we've seen 
nation-state actors, you know, Russia and China predominantly, but also Iran and North Korea have been very active. Uh, we've seen criminal actors, and we've seen a mix of both, where the criminal actors are either acting at the behest of the nation-state, or there's corruption involved, so the nation-state is turning a blind eye. So, you know, uh, a lot of big hacks we've seen in nation-states, those are usually things that are espionage or, or information gathering. Uh, you know, I think Microsoft Exchange might have been an example of that, although it was done in a very messy way, uh, very negligent way that left those systems open to further exploitation by criminals and others. Um, we saw the solar winds hack that uh, looked like it was espionage as well. Uh, but then we saw the Colonial Pipelines hack, which, which is for, by all accounts, was a criminal group. Now, the criminal group is operating or apparently operating from Russia, and Russia has heretofore been turning a blind eye to the, at their activities. Um, but the criminal groups can cause a lot of damage, too. And so nation states, often what you see is the theft of information, particularly you know, both uh, government information, but also trade secret and, uh, and uh, intellectual property from companies. Not as much disruption, although we've certainly seen some, and we're always worried about that. But what really, I think, turned, um, really elevated this issue. And look, I've been involved in this, as you said in the introduction, for about 30 years in, in various aspects of this. And we've always wanted people to really understand that cybersecurity is a key thing, a main priority, a national security issue, and an economic security issue for both governments and companies. But interestingly, the thing that really uh, elevated that, that really made people pay attention, was not apparently a nation-state attack, but a criminal attack um, that was a ransomware attack. And, the, and what motivated criminals, as criminals normally are motivated, is money. What motivates nation-states is, you know, there can be military objectives, there can be political objectives, there could be economic objectives, and they're stealing intellectual property. Uh, all those things uh, motivate nation-states both in cyberspace and in the physical world. For criminals in both in the cyberspace and the physical world, it's money. And these, these ransomware groups have gotten more and more brazen. Uh, and I should note, I was part of a ransomware task force report that was issued back in April, just before Colonial Pipeline, so it was pretty good timing. Um, you know, they're, they're going after money, but what's, what's changed the game is they've gone after critical infrastructure and they've not just stolen information which, and, and tried to you know, extort the people they stole it from, which they have done, but they've also disrupted things. So by locking up the systems, by... by um, uh, scrambling the systems, encrypting the systems so they can't be used. And they've, they've gone after hospitals. And during the pandemic, that's a big thing. They've gone after meat packing plants, so you can't get your hamburger or your steak. Uh, and they've gone after Colonial Pipelines, which was providing gas to the entire East Coast of the United States. And when you have to wait in line for gas, that brings it home in a way that none of the other things we've talked about over the last 20 years does. And I think that just overnight almost elevated this to an international priority where it's gotten attention uh, at, a, at a high level, policy level, certainly including the summit between Presidents Biden and Putin, uh, the, G, the G7 summit, NATO, and, and a lot of other venues, and, and in both our countries, both in Australia and the US. So Chris, are we seeing a convergence between uh, the nation state issue uh, and the economic issue? Are we now seeing nation states using this as um, a, a, a tool by which they can nobble entire economies and societies without having to drop a bomb. Yeah, I mean, look, it's an asymmetric capability. Uh, in, uh, Iran is not likely to be able to run overrun Australia or the U.S. with its military, but it can cause a lot of disruption using its cyber tools because it has, you know, fairly capable hackers. Our in the U.S. our director of national intelligence in his public testimony every year has ranked 
Russia and China as the most capable cyber actors, but but North Korea and Iran as you know second and third or third and you know, third and fourth, depending on which year it is. But catching up fast because you don't need a huge infrastructure, you don't need an air force, you don't need a military, you don't need a whole bunch of tanks. Uh, you need um, you know talented hackers and access to be able to cause a lot of disruption and damage, and and clearly I think that's that is a goal. Uh, some nation states, and you mentioned before the political aims too. You know what we weren't ready for when I was in the government in the U.S. We were looking at potential infrastructure attacks like electrical power grids. We were worried about thefts of intellectual property, like what we saw from China, and we negotiated this agreement with China about that. Um, and we're worried about all those things. What we didn't see coming is the kind of hybrid threat that went after our election systems and combined hacking with disinformation in a way that really undermined, tried to undermine. Uh, our entire political system. So, you know, the threats have changed. They become more intense, I think, uh, more serious. Uh, and and for nation states, if they can do it, they, they will. And the other thing is, you know, there's still this patina of an anonymity that people think if you do something on the internet, uh, it's hard to find you. And sometimes it is, you know, you can use proxies, you can use other things to make it hard. But often that's, you know, if, if you, the activity is large, if it's ongoing, you know who it is. And we, we've been able to, both of our countries have been able on multiple occasions to lay the blame squarely at the door of the actors, whether it be Iran, whether it be North Korea, or uh, more frequently Russia and China. So let me just explore this issue slightly uh, for a little bit longer. Uh, we have a very sophisticated um, war-making infrastructure that has been developed over decades. We don't have as we don't appear to have as sophisticated a cybersecurity infrastructure, and yet that is where uh, the the that is that is what is contested now. Um, yeah. How quickly do we need to bridge that gap? Uh, and in terms of both the cybersecurity skills, under, um, sophistication of understanding amongst government and business. Uh, how ready are we to do that? Uh, is there a campaign that now needs to begin uh, amongst nations, uh, amongst uh, governments to uh, elevate and heighten awareness? Yeah, I mean, look, absolutely. I, I think there are two sides to this. One, you know, I think the US and the UK and Australia and other countries have a lot of capabilities uh, to contest the, the bad guys, the nation states out there. You know, they have cyber operational capabilities. But the fact is, we're as societies incredibly dependent on these technologies, far more dependent than, than Russia is, for instance, or Iran is. So for our economy, for almost everything we do. And that makes us more vulnerable because we're so dependent and these systems, frankly, aren't secure. So on the one hand, we need to develop the capabilities to defend ourselves. And I think we're, we're doing that. I think as countries, we're doing that. Uh, on, the other, on the other hand, we have to develop the defensive aspects we need and we've been kind of terrible up at that. You know, we've talked about this now for 25 years, or as long as I've been doing this. Um, and it's true the defenses have gotten better. People are more aware now than they've been. But we really need to change the game. We need to convince you know, companies. We need to at the C-suite level. We need to convince governments at the ministerial and you know, for, our, for our system, the cabinet level, or the prime minister or president level. That this is a real no-kidding priority that they need to invest uh, resources in. They need to raise awareness about. And as I said, I think I think we turned a corner recently because these ransomware events have captured uh, the attention, the imagination, if you will, of the ordinary person. 
And governments are paying a lot of attention. Uh, there's been a lot of activity out of the U.S. The new administration here, the Biden administration, came in saying uh, that, you know, that um, uh, cybersecurity be a priority at every level of their administration. And indeed, it, it has been. They've appointed high-level folks, really good folks. Uh, they understand the issue more than I think previous administrations had. Uh, and that's good. And I think, yeah, I think so we're th seeing that turn the corner. The other thing that we have to do better, though, is the defensive part, obviously. We need to do a lot more. And there's lots of debates about that. You know, do you need to mandate reporting? We don't have that in the U.S. yet, but it's being debated in our Congress. Do you have to have some minimum standards for, for critical infrastructure? We generally don't have that, but that's another issue that's on the table. Um, and then you also, you know, so that's the defensive part, but, you know, you also have to make sure there are consequences for bad actors. Now, for criminals, you know, you go after them, you do a, a law enforcement investigation, you take them down, you lock them up, ideally. And that's hard to do, but we should do that. For, you know, for nation states, uh, you, need to, you need to make it clear that you're not going to deal with these things, that there are costs for doing this and impose costs on them, whether they be economic sanctions or, or other things you can do to make it clear this is not worth their while or make them think twice. And in the kind of hybrid situation, which we have, you know, with the ransomware actors, if states are being essentially a safe haven for these actors, we need to turn that around, too. We need to make it clear to them that being safe havens is not acceptable. They have a responsibility to take action against those actors. And that's what the dialogue between the U.S. and Russia is right now. Um, so it's a really complex problem, I'd say. It's, it's not one, one dimension. Uh, but clearly, you're right. We need to we need a campaign that people understand and we said this for a while but i think the time is right now we need a campaign for people to really pay attention to this at every level of our societies and um i'm also thinking that this is not something that uh individual countries can uh address on their own because of the well the connected nature of our work and our planet but also uh just the size and scale of it if you've got uh the sort of um uh, digital army that the uh, that China has assembled, or if you have the uh, sophistication that the Russians have assembled, or even the Koreans, then you're talking about quite a formidable force. So, is this where a conversation around the Quad comes into play? Is this where it's it's is this why we're seeing the collaboration between the United States, Japan, India, and Australia? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. This 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 collaboration, this international collaboration, is essential because these are international issues, whether it's a nation state, which is clearly international, or even a criminal group. Look, if I'm a smart criminal, and if I'm trying to hack, uh, you know, let's say I'm in Sydney, and I'm trying to go after a target in Sydney. If I'm smart, I'm going to route that attack through several different countries to make it harder uh, for you to get me, for, for the authorities to find me. So there's always an international dimension on this. And so you know, that level of international collaboration, we've known for a long time, is really important. Uh, we've been doing a lot of that, uh, you know, exchanging information. There's been dialogues between the U.S. and and you know the Five Eye and lots of other countries for years. So that's important. Uh, those kind of dialogues are really important. Uh, what we saw coming out of the G7 was, I think, really important. But but yeah, absolutely, the Quad I think is a key the key uh, player in this. Australia, obviously, India, obviously. Uh, you know, th these are. All these countries uh, that are part of the Quad are, are you know, both targets, um, and they, they have those vulnerabilities, but they also can take action. And the other thing that I think is important is when we've seen these joint attributions where they've been publicly come out and say, X country did this, that's been pretty powerful. It's more powerful to act collectively 
than alone because we act collectively it brings more legitimacy to your actions and you can bring different tools each country has its own tool set tool set its own regional um uh regional tools but also regional power and ability to talk to other neighbors and and uh and countries about this so i think you know stepping up our international game uh both to protect ourselves but also to think about how we can collectively bring accountability to cyberspace is critically important both on the criminal side and the nation state side. So I guess the question is now on, or should be, and if it isn't, it should be on the board agenda. It should be uh, something that uh, is drilled into the C-suite and it should be something that um, uh, is factored into digital transformation. In Australia, we've had 30 years or up until just recently of uninterrupted growth. There hasn't been uh, the, the motivation to undertake the sort of digital transformation that's required, uh, certainly not the sort that we saw in the UK or anyone affected by the GFC more adversely than we were. Uh, and we also, when you look at the, the Atlas of, uh, of um, Economic Complexity that Harvard puts out, you see that we've dropped from 55 in 1995 down to 87 in uh, 2018. And that coincides with um, uh, the region's uptake of our natural resources. Um, so, what I'm what I'm asking now is uh, is is a lot of this driven by um, and exacerbated by the fact that organisations are still running legacy systems. It's a, is it a problem that's been made acute because of Silicon Valley's um, uh, rush to get MVPs to market before the competition, and therefore they they haven't dotted the i's and crossed the t's on the back end, or is it simply or is it simply just, you know, the increased sophistication and attention paid to it by those who wish to do us harm? So, uh, not surprisingly, all of the above. I mean, all those things, I think, contribute to this. You know, I do think we've seen companies uh, trying to build security into their products more in, over the last number of years. Uh, you know, but there's still the pressure to get things to market, absolutely. Uh, I think that um, one of the challenges is that too often senior people, both in the C-suite and at um, in government, think of this as a technical issue, this kind of like boutique technical issue, this cybersecurity. You have to understand how to program computers to understand that. Well, you don't. You don't have to be a coder to understand the, the economic security, the national security implications, or the business implications of this, just like you don't need to be a nuclear scientist to understand you know, how nuclear power and nuclear weapons can affect your, your national security and economy. So so we've got to demystify it. We've got to mainstream it so that people don't think of it as this boutique issue, but make it a core issue that's blended in with everything else. You know, um, you know, when we're dealing with, like, say, a Russian cyber attack or a Chinese cyber attack, it's not a cyber issue necessarily. It's an issue with that country. You have to look at all the all the tools you have, all the leverages you have over that country back, you know, at the end of the Obama administration, we had and we still do have a big problem with Chinese theft of intellectual property and trade secrets. You know, it was massive and it had been going on for years. And we called them out on it and we pressured them at the you know from the president on down consistently over a year and a half period. And they finally came to the table and negotiated and then negotiated with Australia bilaterally and also the G twenty that no country should do that. And for a couple of years, you know, it dropped off. Now it's sort of back, unfortunately. But it did have an impact. And the reason it had an impact uh, in part was because we didn't treat it as a cyber issue. We treated it as this main everyday issue that we're willing to take friction in our relationship. So we got to start treating it that way. 
I, again, I think we're getting closer to that as people get more familiar with this, but it's, it's still a hurdle. The other thing I've seen, and you talked about digital transformation, you know, people have, people have different communities. You know, I remember when I was uh, working at the White House, um, we, we uh, produced an international strategy, which back in 2011 was the first in the world, and now Australia has one as well. And what we did is I pulled together about 16 different agencies in our government, everything from our, our uh, Defense Department to our Homeland Security Department, to our Justice Department, but also our Commerce Department, our, our Federal Trade Commission, others who were more involved in the economic side. And the people who do the economic innovation, digital economy issues have a whole different language. They talk about internet policy than the people who do with the security issues who talk about cybersecurity. And you've got to bring those two people together or those two communities together because really cybersecurity should be part and parcel of the digital transformation plan, not just for our big countries, but also for the developing world. And that's where capacity building plays a big role as well. So let's just uh, tease that out a little bit uh, further. Often what happens as executives rise is they become de-skilled because they acquire new leadership skills and they're looking at, at um, they've got control of different levers. Are we now saying, uh, and it's long overdue, I would suspect, are we now saying that uh, technical, the understanding of the technology and the understanding of the of the issues requires um, uh, more a more sophisticated uh, embrace of um, of of the outcomes of technology. Do does the C suite do the boards have to be retrained? Do they now need to up upskill? Do they need to upgrade their understanding of what's happening so that they can have more meaningful conversations with those who are charged with the responsibility of uh, managing cybersecurity within their organisations? So they don't have to be experts. They don't have to be the doctors, if you will. They don't have to be trained cybersecurity experts, but they have to understand why this is an important issue and how it impacts them. And so, unfortunately, often the metric now is you have a you know, chief information security officer Sometimes they report to the board, sometimes they report to the CIO. Um, and if nothing bad is happening or nothing bad has been discovered, they're fine. And as soon as something bad happens, they get fired. And that's not right, right? That metric is, is unsustainable. So what, what we, will, we, you're, we need to raise that awareness. So I don't, I don't need the CEO or the C-suite people to live and breathe cyber, but I need them not to treat it as a, a binary issue. I need them to understand it's a risk management issue, just like other risk management issues they deal with every day. And the same for government. You know, again, this is treating it as a core national security issue and not as an issue that's this you know kind of strange, I don't understand technical issue. And so, yeah, look, it's good if they have some knowledge. It's good if they have some understanding of the technology. But as long as they have people who they trust who can explain to them, and the board is advised uh, in, at a level where they, they get it, um, and that you can put those in terms that they understand, risk management and other terms, that's what we need. And, and there's been some movement toward that over the last 10 years, I'd say, uh, partly because of fears of liability and other things that have gone, some regulation, but, uh, and some sectors are better than the others. I, I'd say the financial sector is a little, at least in the US, is a little more ahead of the game uh, than some of the other sectors like manufacturing. But there's a lot further we need to go. And so now I just want to turn our attention to the producers of, of, of software. Uh, there's a raging debate in Australia about providing backdoor access to um, police forces and whatnot. There's two things I wanted to just ask you about here. One, what obligation do the producers of platforms of the technology have in ensuring their systems are secure uh, and 
that they are honest about the level of security that, that's been applied. And two, uh, can you give me your thoughts about uh, the impact of providing um, police forces with access to the back doors? So, so two very different questions. So let me take the first first. Um, look, I, I do think, um, you know, software providers need to take some responsibility. They need to take the time to make their software as secure as possible. Now, these are very complex, you know, I understand packages of software, and sometimes, you know, you discover vulnerabilities down the line, that's inevitably going to happen. But you really need to spend time to make sure your software is secure and do some due diligence on that. Now, look, I'm a recovering lawyer. Uh, you know, there's a lot of litigious people in the U.S., I, I imagine in Australia as well. Um, but we haven't seen many suits brought against companies who release software that's not secure or against companies who don't take the right precautions so far because there's not a real standard of care. I think that's changing a little bit, too. Um, so, you know, as close as we got in the U.S., there was something I thought that was really innovative that the Biden administration did, which is a software bill of materials and said, look, when the U.S. government buys software, it's got to meet certain standards. So it's not you know, legislative of imposing a requirement. What it's saying is, if you want to sell the U.S. government, you have to meet these standards. And what happens by that is because the U.S. government buys so freaking much stuff uh, at such a high volume that uh, they're not going to make two versions of their software. They're going to meet that standard, and that helps the entire marketplace. So I think more efforts like that to try to raise the bar. And I think as we go forward in this, I, you know, I just think that, that software makers are going to be ca called to the carpet if they don't uh, if they don't make their software more secure, if they're they're too uh, available for this, uh, so that you know that's a tough issue certainly. Um, the issue of law enforcement access. Look, I used to be a prosecutor, and I see both sides of the issue. It's really hard. Um, you know, absolutely, you want law enforcement access to protect your citizens from terrorism, from loss of life, for all these really horrible things that could happen. And criminals have become very smart at using encrypted and other systems. Um, at the same time, you you worry that if you create some kind of a backdoor in a system, that that could have broader and more deleterious effects in terms of opening that software up to exploitation by bad guys again. So, so how you do this, I mean, it's something that has been studied, you know, the encryption debates in the U.S., we've been talking about this for at least 10 years. We don't have a good solution on it so far. Uh, I know Australia has been looking at legislation. Um, uh, you know, I just I think it's a tough issue. I, if I had an easy solution, I, I'd probably be a rich man, <laughs> which sadly I'm not. So, uh, uh, because I think both sides have legitimate uh, issues that they're raising. Uh, and we, we have to find a way to, I think, work together to find a solution. Because I think if there was a big terrorist attack and we can't get into the communications and it's enabled by it, that's going to be unacceptable at the same time. You know, you don't want these systems to be vulnerable, to be taken down and for, you know, criminals and nation states to be able to get into them because there is a backdoor they discover as well. So it's so it's not an easy issue. OK, so now let's make it very practical for the listeners. Uh, there are two uh, there's with several things we've spoken about. One is understanding what's going on in um, in the world around you from a geopolitical aspect, but also uh, from a legislative aspect in your own country. We've talked about the need to understand uh, and to be able to speak with the technology people. Uh, we've talked about 
leaders being able to understand and have the conversation with their technology people and those that are responsible for their cybersecurity in order to better manage the risk, whether they're in government or private enterprise or not-for-profits. We've spoken about the upskilling of the C-suite management and, and the board to be able to have those conversations. We've talked about what, um, what has happened that has uh, drawn our attention to the issue uh, through the convergence of nation states uh, attacking economic assets. So now I'm a business owner, uh, whether I'm an ASX 100 business owner, you know, whether I'm on the NASDAQ, whatever it is, or whether or not I'm an SME, I have two, um, two important areas. One's to make sure that uh, I do everything that I can to avoid being hacked. And the second is to do everything I can to resolve uh, any issues as they arise. Talk me through the practicalities of both of those things as a business owner. Um, you know, where do I go? What do I, what do I ask? What do I look for uh, as a business owner in very tactile, tangible ways uh, so that I can protect myself? Yeah, I mean, number one, you know, you, you should have uh, either a good uh, internal infrastructure, a good uh, chief information security officer, or if you're outsourcing it, you know, make sure you've looked into that. And, and it's having that basic awareness. Know this is a problem. You can't do anything about it unless you're aware this is an issue. And you value, you know, you don't, you might not protect everything at the same level, but your crown jewels, the things you really care about, the data you care about, the trade secrets you care about, make sure those are protected. Think about how you protect them. You know, even do exercises with the board and others in your company to see how you react to an incident. Uh, you know, often companies don't have any game plan in advance. And one thing I've said to companies for years, including when I was in the government, is make sure you have uh, a response plan in place, not while you're being hacked, uh, but before you do. Uh, you know, this has played out especially with ransomware recently, because what happens in ransomware is the companies kind of panic and they pay the ransom, these really high ransoms. Uh, because they don't think they have a choice. Well, it turns out there's a lot of alternatives often. They, there's you know, resources out there that might help them uh, unlock their systems that are available for free or available from all these other services. This is something the U.S. has created a web page and, and uh, Europol has a web page on this, a resource on this called uh, No More Ransom, for instance. So it's, it's being aware, just like you are in any other business area, being aware of what your resources are and what your game plan is, you know, how are you going to pull in the lawyers, the public relations people to make sure that you're doing the right external stuff, who you're going to call in government, who you're going to call in law enforcement, who you're going to call in, you know, for Australia, the Australian Cybersecurity Center, you know, what are your contacts there? Don't make this about when something bad happens. That's the worst possible thing you can do because you're going to act in the worst possible way. But have that plan. And look, that doesn't mean you won't get hacked. But it means that when you do get hacked, you you have a you you have a, a plan to deal with that and to remediate that harm and to mitigate that harm. You know, obviously back up your data. Uh, we've seen instances where, especially with ransomware again, where where uh, companies and others are taken down because they don't have access to their data at all. This happened with Colonial Pipelines. But if you have a backup, you can restore. That works very well. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of things just practically that the C-suite can do to prepare for this in advance. And that game plan, that the incident response plan to me is the most important because that raises awareness. Uh, and, and then you can exercise it. I mean, I've seen a lot of interesting uh, uh, 
exercises, tabletop exercises, even beyond tabletop exercises, uh, that just test people. And, you know, it's amazing. It's kind of a wake up call for them because they think this is a, this is this ethereal possibility. It's never going to happen to us. But when you actually run through it, it brings it home to them. So, so really preparation is the key. It doesn't mean you're going to get rid of all of it. That's never going to happen, but it means you're much more prepared for it when it happens. And would you be inviting the the CISO or the person responsible for cybersecurity to be reporting to the board on the most recent hacks and their response to them uh, so that the board and, and management have comfort that uh, we're patching and patching often? Yeah, I, I would. Look, uh, the board deals with lots of different issues, right? So you don't want to get – you need that translation layer. You don't want to get to be overly technical with the board because they'll just tune you out. So you need to put it in terms they can understand. You could do a dashboard. You could do other things. You could talk about, here's what we're doing to protect ourselves. Here's what we're doing to recover from these things. Here's what we've seen. Um, but, you know, it's a skill that I think CISOs uh, need to have is how to talk to boards, how to present these things in terms of boards understand. What do boards deal with? Boards deal with risk management. Put it in those lines, you know, that your your trade secrets are worth this much. And if they get stolen, this is the potential damage to the company. And here's the kind of mitigation measures and how much they cost. I mean, put it in concrete terms that boards understand. Do not overly delve into the technical uh, trade craft of how the hackers are doing this because you'll lose them, I think, by and large. And some boards, look, some boards have been very forward-leaning and they've had made sure there's a member of the board who is schooled in this, a cybersecurity professional or someone in the background, so it's not just the CISO uh, who is the you know the person who comes in saying, I need more, I need more resources all the time, and someone who, who can give that more validity. And finally, before we go, because this has just been the most incredible conversation, I'm very grateful to you. We're all working remotely now out of necessity. Uh, that would raise uh, other questions in terms of how secure um, our systems are, no matter how sophisticated. Uh, is the, are there any special steps that we need to be taking out of the ordinary uh, in order to mitigate any risk of, of um, uh, damage caused uh, by people using local, local uh, systems? Yeah, look, I mean, first, there's the awareness level. Be aware that you, can, you likely can be a target. Uh, you don't have to be a nation state target, but you, you can be a criminal target. The fact that we're all doing all these things online has, I think, heightened the target, made the, the vulnerability profile higher because there's more for the bad guys to shoot at. Uh, so that means do the things that I, we talked about earlier that businesses should do, even for individuals. Make sure you know, you're updating your software. When you get the, the notice from, you know, uh, from Microsoft or from Apple, uh, or from Linux to update your security, do it. You know, don't delay, <laughs> don't wait several days. Um, do security scans, make sure you have antivirus programs, make sure that you're looking at other tools, innovative tools that are out there to make sure that you're, you're protecting yourself. Uh, I mean, treat this, as, treat this as the kind of, you know, when you go driving, you have a seatbelt, you take precautions. Think about the same thing. Just don't assume everything is gonna be okay because too much of our lives now reside on computers. Too much of what we do every day does. And look, the bad guys are out to take advantage of that. And, and you know, we have to do our part to stop that. Chris, thank you very much. It's been a fabulous conversation and I look forward to our next one. Me too. Thank you very much. It was great to be with you today. We appreciate your time. 
and know you'll be able to improve your security using the information from today. And remember, when you need the best security for your business, speak with us and get the solutions that only Internet 2.0 can provide.